Well, how are you guys doing? Are you sleeping? No one's talking. Okay, good. Good. Um, this, this is week two of our Wednesday night series. Before we get going, I want to just make a couple different announcements. The first thing I want to do, this will be kind of like a, a visual picture of I want to express some need to you. Okay, I'm going to ask our ushers to come forward. Uh, they're going to pass our, the plates for Timberline family who call Timberline home, uh, who, who give faithfully of, uh, of what God has given them. And I have a need. We have a need. Um, hey, Dave. Well, you've got two hands full. R- raise one hand real high. Dave, come forward here and jump up and down, do some cartwheels. This is Dave. We have a need. Okay. We would, we would love it if those who are a part of the Wednesday night community could help us by volunteering on Wednesday nights. It doesn't even have to be every single Wednesday night, but to, on a Wednesday night on occasion, help distribute the communion elements, the, the bread and the cup, to pass the plates, to collect the offering. So if, if that's something that you would say, I'm pretty good at like, Walking from one row to the next and handing something to somebody. If you're like, that's your spiritual gift. Okay. Um, would you see Dave afterwards? And Dave, you're going to be where afterwards? Right here? Excuse me? Where are you going to be afterwards that they can find uh, you? Right in the back. In the back. Dave's going to be in the back. So would you please see Dave? Seven. Seven. He needs seven people to help. You don't have to be here every Wednesday. I mean, if you can't be here, that's all right. That would give us enough to do the job. Okay. So seven are needed. Or nerves in your living room. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Dave. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, you guys. For you can you can go ahead and pass those those plates there. A um, couple things, real quickly, also before we jump in. I always like to um, make our Timberline family aware of of good resources for for getting into God's Word, studying it, understanding it. Um, there are tons of great study Bibles. Um, if, if you don't have a study Bible, now the difference between a Bible and a study Bible is a study Bible has a number of like notes at the bottom. There's like a line, it's like here's you know here's the here's the passage, but then there's a hard line, and then there's all of these notes by different scholars that that help us understand. These are people who read the original languages, who do historical, cultural, linguistic research, all these sorts of things, and so. A lot of great study Bibles out there. There was a new one that was just released, uh, man, maybe a month ago is all. And it's called the, um, the NIV Cultural Backgrounds Study Bible. What's cool about this, it's a little different. A lot of study Bibles, which is super helpful, will, in their study notes, will give information on, like, um, you know, theological notes. You know, here's, you know, this is. Paul's developing his idea of the atonement. You kind of see that back in here and go to this passage. This is different because it doesn't do that. It simply gives notes on the culture and the customs of the ancient world. Um, One of the biggest challenges of reading a collection of 66 books written in another language uh, is we're separated by historical distance. We're separated by cultural distance. And that's, that's really tough. So a lot of times... I misunderstand things because I'm a 21st century post-enlightenment Western whatever, right? That's not who these people were. And so this is a super resource that really helps you understand the cultures and the customs and all that sort of thing. So great resource. Take a look at it. If you're in the market for a new study Bible, it might be a good one for you. 
So we're, this is week two. We are doing a series um, looking at the question of, uh, is Mormonism Christian? And uh, if you were here last week, essentially what we did is we walked through kind of the story, the worldview is maybe the best way to put it, of, of Mormonism. Um, kind of answering the big questions, where did we come from? Why are we here? And where are we going? All worldviews answer those kinds of questions. And so we saw this in, in, in this sort of picture. In fact, if you picked up a bulletin this week on page four and five, kind of gives that map that we walked through of what um, historically the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints ha- has taught about where are we from, why are we here, and where are we going. So if you weren't here last week, uh, we have last week's bulletins, and there was what we called a profile. It's just a two-page kind of overview to help you get like a radar fix on, you know, who are the, what's the leadership of the LDS church, and how are the, what's the history, and what's a kind of a biblical response. It's just a great little two-page overview. They're up here. Feel free to come grab one if you weren't here this last week. Um, Here's here's what I want to do tonight is tonight specifically um, looking at this this question of what is the Book of Mormon and um, how can we actually reach out to our Mormon friends and neighbors in a way to share Christ with them. And I want to suggest one method, and it's just one piece, of actually using the Book of Mormon to begin to make inroads of relationship, of communication, of talking about the historical Jesus with those in the LDS church. Okay, um, so here's 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 kind of what I want to do. Um, Christians talk about this idea that, that we we believe in what's called the if you're part of if you're part of the Protestant church like we are, we believe in a sola scriptura by scripture alone, that, that we have a book and that it's this idea that we believe that God leads his church, his body, through the writings of scripture, the Old and the New Testament. And so we say, the scripture has an authority that's different than anything else, even different than my own feelings or preferences or ideas or the laws of the land or other things like that. It, it stands above all those things. Well, Mormons also have scripture. And, and it would be four different things. It would be the Bible, the King James Version specifically. And then it would also be the, the Book of Mormon. We've, many of us have heard about that. And, and then two other documents uh, called the uh, Doctrine and Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price. And so if you have Mormon friends or if a Mormon missionary comes to your door, they might have what they call a quad which is a big, thick book with, with all four of those texts together in one. And tonight I want to look at just specifically the Book of Mormon, because the Book of Mormon is one of the main inroads that an LDS friend will use to have a conversation. It will be the main inroad that if you have Mormon missionaries come to your door, that they will use. That's the, that's the starting point with them. And so I want to talk a little bit about what is the Book of Mormon, how we got it, and then, like I said specifically, how can we actually use it in witnessing to our LDS friends? So let me do a little bit of a kind of a history lesson here. Um, so the, 
let me talk a little bit about Joseph Smith, give you just a super overview, a super brief overview of Joseph Smith, because understanding him is really key to understanding what this book is, like how, what, what his claims were about this book and that sort of thing. So in, can you all see this? In 1805, Joseph Smith was born. Anyone know his birth date? It's the best day of the year. It's my birthday. (laughs) December 23rd, 1805. So I got that going for me. He's, Joseph Smith is born, and his family are farmers. Eventually, they, they find themselves in Palmyra, New York, upstate New York area. Joseph Smith um, asserted that in, in 1820, um, he, he had his first vision. Now, if you were here last week, go back to what we said. Do you remember how we ended last week? We were talking about what was going on in the 1830s. Do you remember? What was it? Religious revivals, right? Yeah, Second Great Awakening, uh, Layman's Prayer Revival, Charles Finney. There were all these revivals, remember? And we said that there was this particular area of, of New York called the Burned Over District, right? And they said that it, it got that name because that's how fast these religious revivals, Christian revivals, would, would move through. Like, just like fire goes through a town. And it would be one after another after another. And we said... The problem was they didn't do what the the Christian biblical model, as we see with Paul, we see with others, that they would plant a church and then stay there and disciple and apprentice and that that people would understand what it means to follow Jesus, not just you love Jesus. Good. okay, I'll see you later. And so we said there there was this sort of milieu in in this part of the Americas. And we we mentioned that that two of the great American homegrown religions um, Jehovah's Witnesses in 1888 and Mormonism in 1830 grew out of this time period in this area. And so we said there's kind of an impetus upon us to say, wow, what are we doing? Are we creating like that same kind of culture? Do we have churches where people are really getting grounded? So 1820, this is in the middle of all this. Joseph Smith says that he had experienced all these. There was Baptists and Presbyterians and Methodists. Those are the three he mentions, but a lot of others. And he, he tells later, he recounts that he said, I, I didn't know, you know, which one do I join as a young man? You know, he's 14 years old at the time. And he's, he, which tour do I go with the Methodists and, you know, the Baptists, the Presbyterians? Like, which one do I go with? Because they're all kind of saying this and that. And so Smith says that he went out into a field and he, he, he desired to ask God. And he, he says, later he says, what, what, what spurred me was there's a passage in the book of James. And James says, Anyone who's, who's lacking wisdom should ask God, who, who gives it generously to all without finding fault. And so he goes, okay, that's what I'll do. I'll ask God for wisdom about which church to join. So he goes out into the, into the forest, and as he's praying, seeking God, God, which one do I join? It, you know, is it the Baptists? Are they right? Is it the, which one? Well, right then, he, he has this heavenly vision. And you've seen, if you've, if you've uh, seen much of the LDS art, you've, it's a famous, famous uh, picture that has been represented in art many times. If you uh, have gone to the temple, you saw this in there, Joseph Smith on his knees in the forest. And these two personages, he called the Heavenly Father and his son Jesus, appeared to him. And when, he, when they appeared, he said, well, which, which church should I join? 
And what he was told, in, in his words, let, let me read them for you. Uh, this is from History of the Church, written by Joseph Smith. He's asking which church to join. Now, this is really, really key and important. He says, I was answered that I must join none of them. Well, why is that? He goes on to say, for they were all wrong. Now, who's all? What are we talking about when we say all? All Christian denominations, okay? Methodist, Presbyterian, you know, Assembly of God, if they'd been around at the time, whatever. All, all, all churches were wrong. And, he says, the personage who addressed me said that, now this is interesting, all of their creeds, what's a creed? Like Apostles' Creed, right? I believe in God the Father, Creator of Heaven, Jesus Christ, His only Son, Lord. You know, that Nicene Creed, Chalcedonian Creed, all their creeds, okay, were an abomination. That's like a strong word. An abomination, God said, in my sight. And those professors, that means everyone who, who professes, it doesn't mean a professor in a college, everyone who professes, yeah, I believe, I believe. If, if you've been baptized here at Timberline Church, we say, why are you being baptized? And you say, because I confess, because I believe. You're, you're one of those confessors. Um, all those professors were corrupt. That, quote, they draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They teach that for doctrines and the commands of men, having a form of godliness, but they deny the power Therefore, so here's the point. What Joseph Smith was told, and he goes on to say this later, is that the true church, Jesus' church that he started with his 12 disciples, right? Remember all, soon after the, the disciples, the 12 apostles, soon after they died, Joseph Smith was told by, by Jesus and God that the church, now, now again, remember, in New Testament language, church never means a building, right? Church is God's people. The church ceased to exist. Okay? And so, basically, you've got up until, you know, 1700 some years where the church doesn't exist anymore. It has not existed. And so, when he asks this question, which church should I join? What he's told is none of them, because none of them are the church. So, what should I do? And so, he's told in 1820, you're going to reestablish it. You're going to bring back or restore the everlasting gospel. Now, how many of you have, have like, I don't know a lick about cars or anything, but I know some people who like restore cars, right? And they get a 1960-something, whatever, and they restore it. It's all beat up and, you know, and, and, and they restore it. Well, to restore something is to bring it back to... It's original blueprint, right, is the idea. So he's claiming that he's restoring the New Testament church because it has ceased to exist. Um, now, in uh, 1823, I'll just say Father and Jesus. Okay. Um, 1823, he has the first vision of this. There's this being Moroni. If you've looked at the, the Mormon temple, the, the carving at the very top is Moroni. <clears throat> okay? So Joseph Smith, and you'll see this is a famous picture as well. He's in his bed in this cabin, and he has this miraculous vision where this being comes to him, Moroni. Now, he's called the angel Moroni. Remember last week what we said. There's no 
nature distinction between us and angels and God, right? Remember, we're all of the same essence, just different evolutionary places. Okay? So, it's the angel Moroni. Other times they talk about him being a resurrected man. It's a little confusing, but we're all the same thing, really just different stages of it. So this being appears to him. And then there's a series of three different visions. He appears to him a couple, a couple different times. Well, finally, 1827... He's told about the plates earlier, these golden plates that contain an ancient record. Um, and he, he's told where to go get them. He's told that he, he finds them in this place called the Hill Camorra, which is near his home in Palmyra, New York. And, um, and so a couple times he's told to go there and, you know, he, he's not allowed to dig them up. Anyway, he finally is allowed to go to, to, to dig up these, these golden plates. Now, the reason why it's Moroni is because Moroni used to be a man who lived here in the Americas. And Moroni wrote down the account of all of his people, everything that happened. And we'll talk a little bit more about that because we're going to go into the Book of Mormon here tonight. And so we'll learn a little bit about who Moroni is and these different people groups that make up the story. But he, he basically says, I want to tell you, did you know that after Jesus' resurrection, he, he came to the Americas? And he interacted with these people groups there, and you'll find out who they are and, and all these sorts of things. But I want you to dig it up, and then I want you to translate it. And, and so what happens is in 1830, so from 1827 to 1830, three years' time, Joseph Smith, in a series of different encounters, and he has friends who help, but, but he himself, usually putting his hat, his head into a hat which had a seer stone in it, or using what he called the umum and thumum, um, used, used these tools, and then translated the, the Book of Mormon. So the Book of Mormon is published and distributed first in 1830. And that's going to be important to remember tonight. This is the first printing of the Book of Mormon. Now, it claims to not have been written then. It claims to have been written centuries and centuries ago in the Americas. But this is the translation of it. And Joseph Smith claimed that the Book of Mormon on these golden plates, it was written in something called uh, Reformed Egyptian Hieroglyphics, which no one had the ability to translate. And so he was given a divine gift to translate it. So he wasn't doing, you know, translation work, you know, looking at vocabulary and parsing verbs and all that sort of thing. He's just a, he's a, he's a channel. Okay. He, he's, he's translating this by the gift and the power of God. Finally, uh, 1844, Smith is killed. Um, Due to a lot of different details, he finds himself in prison for some things. Anti-Mormon mob comes. He and his brother are in prison. Fight breaks out. A couple guns are snuck into the uh, prison. Big gunfight. Joseph Smith kills a couple people, but he in the process is killed as well. <clears throat> and so his death. And then after that, the leadership of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints splinters into a hundred different groups from there. And so today you've got about a hundred different splinter groups claiming succession from Joseph Smith as the prophet. The one we're talking about would be what we think of as Utah Mormons, the LDS. You know, and there's RLDS, there's FLDS, there's, there's a lot of different splinter groups, but, but we're simply narrowing our focus to the primary group 
of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So here's what I want to do tonight. Um, if you have your, your notes here this evening, if you want to follow along with me, what we're going to do is we're going to walk through some pages, some passages in the Book of Mormon. Now, here's what I need to say. From, uh, turn to page 7 in your booklet. Um, and what I, th- I don't know if we'll have time for this. What I thought it was, if we get through this, uh, I wanted to try to address some of the questions that have come in through the texts, which thanks for doing that. It's really, really helpful to kind of hear like what's unclear and what's, what's maybe not, not as clear as it could be on page three on the bottom is the text. I would love to get your comments, your thoughts, your questions. Um, and if we don't get to them tonight, next week, we'll definitely address some of those questions that, that you guys have if you want to just text those in. Page 7, though, everything from page 7 through the very end, page 27, it's all uh, facsimiles. It's all photocopies of um, various editions of the Book of Mormon, uh, other publications by the LDS Church and their general authorities. So nothing from here on out is Christian material. Now, the reason that's important is, is this. If you, have, uh, if you dialogue with a, a Mormon, there's, there's great sensitivity on their part to looking at what they would call anti-Mormon material, which is essentially anything that would criticize or question the LDS Church is, is labeled anti-Mormon material. Um, so, for instance, remember when I talked about for a person to get a temple recommend? You know, last week we talked about that. One of the questions that's asked when you meet with your with your ward bishop um, and then and then the stake president is, uh, do you do you have any sympathies toward apostate Mormons or anti Mormon? Are you, what are you reading? Are you reading any anti Mormon materials? Those are questions that are asked. So those are elements that will keep you out of the temple. So it's important that as you engage with Mormons, it's very difficult to give them any material that's not produced by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So for that purpose, everything from page 7 on is material produced either by the church or uh, church, you know, church Sunday school publications or copies, editions of the Book of Mormon. Okay, does that make sense? Because of that, I didn't write a whole lot on there. So I'll mention a few things. You might want to make notes on things, but I didn't do that because, again, the second it has anything on there that's not theirs, it can be anti-Mormon material. So chapter, uh, I'm sorry, page 7. And, let's, and we'll try to breeze through this here. Um, Moroni is, is one of the books in the Book of Mormon. And Moroni, um, chapter 10, verse 4, is like our John 3.16. Okay? Like, if, if you talk to a Mormon, this is the verse they will know for sure. Okay? Moroni 10.4. And it's, it's toward the end of the book. And here's, here's, here's sort of the challenge. Here's what it says. Um, and if, if you ever meet with a Mormon missionary at the end of it, probably the first meeting, this is where you'll end. Moroni 10.4. And here's the challenge that's made to you. And when ye shall receive these things, the Book of Mormon, the contents of that, I would exhort you that ye would ask God, the Eternal Father, in the name of Christ, if these things are not true. And if ye shall ask with a sincere heart and with real intent... Having faith in Christ, 
he will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost. So do you understand what it's saying? You read this book and you go, yeah, I don't I don't know. I'm not sure. You know, you're a Christian or you're, you know, you're whatever. Um, what you're encouraged to do is, well, would you would you read the Book of Mormon and then would you pray about it and ask God to let you know? And historically, uh, Mormons will say, I, I bear you my testimony. You'll often hear that phrase. What they're saying is, I've done this and I received a testimony from the spirit that this is true. And so everything we're going to look at tonight, if you sit down with a, a Mormon, work through these things, one of the biggest holdups is going to be, no matter what they see, but I prayed one time, I can tell you when it happened, and I received a spiritual testimony. So no matter what facts I see, I, I have an absolute certainty because of an experience I had. Now, let me, I'm going to give you one reason tonight why that's not wise. And next week, I'm going to give you a different reason. Okay? The first reason tonight why, if a Mormon says to you, I've, I've been asked many times, would you pray about the Book of Mormon? The answer is no. Not, not this no. No. <laughs> it's not that. It's no for two reasons. The first reason we'll talk about tonight. second reason we'll talk about next week. The first reason is because that is never the test of determining new scripture. That's never the test of determining scripture. Meaning, is this really from God? Well, what is the test? Turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, the account of, of Paul... And his missionary efforts, we talked about him going places, planting churches, staying there for years, apprenticing people, making people apprentices of Jesus, and moving on and doing all these sorts of things. Acts chapter 17, um, verse 10. There's this almost parenthetical throwaway comment about the different people groups that Paul interacts with. And there's a group, group called the Bereans. Have you heard that name before? You've probably heard it in different places. There are like Berean bookstores. and that. Uh, I remember when I was growing up, there was a Berean bookstore around. And I, I don't know why they called them Bereans. Well, this is kind of why here. Listen to the Bereans. This, this comment is made by, by Luke, the author, recounting Paul's interaction with Thessalonians and Bereans and all these different people groups. And he says this. Um, as soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Cyrus, Silas away to Berea. Now it says, on arriving there, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Okay, So Jews accept the Hebrew scriptures. Paul's coming to them with a new revelation. Right? I'm going to tell you about this Jesus. This Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that's been done, that God has done through the Jewish people. And it says, now listen to this. Now the, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than the Thessalonians. More, why? Why were they of more noble character? Well, listen. For they received the message with great eagerness after examining the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Isn't that interesting? They received only after they examined this. What are the scriptures? Old Testament. Jesus come, Paul comes talking about Jesus and they go, this sounds really good. Mm, hold on. <laughs> And they start digging through their Old Testament. And they're told they're of more noble character. Now, Paul could be like, <clears throat> hello, I'm Paul. Okay, I'm going to write two-thirds of the New Testament. Okay, why don't you just believe what I say? 
Okay? I'm talking about Jesus. Jesus commissioned me. I didn't experience. I saw Jesus with my own eyes in this vision experience and all this sort of. He didn't say that. He said they were more noble because when I brought them this new revelation, they said, we'll see. And then they examined their scriptures because they knew the Old Testament was like a level. It was straight for sure. And if this new revelation lined up to the level of the Old Testament, okay, we'll give it a go. If it didn't line up with it, no way, forget it. So, how do you determine if this is another testament of Jesus Christ, his word? What would you, what's the biblical model, according to Paul, according to Luke? Hold it up to the level, right? Pray about it? No. The Bereans, he didn't say pray about it. And we'll talk next week why, specifically why praying about it is, is not just a bad idea, a foolish idea. Absolutely foolish, according to the Bible, why it's foolish, okay? But that's the first, the first thing there. Okay, so you're told to pray about it. You will definitely encounter that as you dialogue with Mormons. Like I said, that's sort of one reason why you can with confidence say no, because there's a better model. So why don't we go about that model? Okay, um, go ahead and turn to page eight. Small print. I apologize, guys. I had to like pack this thing full and, and there's a lot of stuff in here. We'll skip over some things. But um, on page eight, you kind of have to turn your book booklet sideways, I think. Um, the the left hand side. This is some writings by Orson Pratt. Orson Pratt was one of the 12 apostles Okay, of the LDS church at a point. So he's one of the general authorities, very high up, one of the 12. Um, there, there's, there's the prophet, president, revelator, seer, whoever that is, you know, the top guy. Uh, first one was Joseph Smith. And then he had these other apostles around him. So this is not in the first presidency, but this is one of the apostles of the LDS church. And what he's doing is he's talking about people who say, ah, I'm not sure about this. I think this might be false. Listen to his words, because I think there's actually great wisdom in his words. Orson Pratt says this. Um, start, start on the underlined words. Do you see those? Left-hand side, underlined. I'm, I'm just going to read a little bit here. He says, this book, speaking of the Book of Mormon, must be either true or false. If true, it is one of the most important messages ever sent from God to man, affecting both the temporal and eternal interests of every People under heaven. Now jump down to the next little underlying part. He says, if false, if the Book of Mormon is false, it is one of the most cunning, wicked, bold, deep laden impositions ever palmed upon the world, calculated to, to deceive and ruin millions. By this point, there weren't even a million Mormons yet in the world. Millions who sincerely receive it as the word of God and will suppose themselves securely built upon the rock of truth until they are plunged with their families into hopeless despair. He goes on to say the nature of the message of in the Book of Mormon is such that if true, no one can possibly be saved and reject it. If false, no one can possibly be saved and receive it. According to Dorson Pratt, one of the general authorities and apostles of the LDS Church. Jumping down, let me just read one other part here. He says, if, so Mormon missionary asked you to, to pray about it. Was that Orson Pratt's view? To pray about it? Listen, if after a rigid examination, 
doesn't sound like prayer. It be found an imposition. Listen, what, what should you do, according to Orson Pratt, if after a rigid examination you determine that this is not level with the Old and New Testament? Well, he tells us, he says, um, the evidences and arguments upon which the imposture was detected should be clearly and logically stated. That's a good idea. That those who have been sincerely yet unfortunately deceived may perceive the nature of the deception and be reclaimed. And that, they, uh, and that those who continue to publish the delusion may be exposed and silenced. How though? This is not by physical force. Uh, neither by persecutions, bare assertions, not ridicule, but by strong and powerful arguments, by evidences adduced from what things? Two things. Reason and scripture. That's what Martin Luther himself did when he stood up and he says, I cannot recant unless I'm convinced by reason and scripture. Orson Pratt sounds really logical and reasonable to me. If I follow Orson Pratt, one of the 12 apostles of the LDS church, I am to examine this book rigidly. And if I come to the conclusion that it is not level with the word of God, I am to make strong argument, compelling arguments to to show evidence and to persuade not by persecution or bare assertion, but by reason and scripture. Okay, according to Orson Pratt. One of the twelve apostles. So that's, I, I think I'm on good footing, even with if, if I'm sitting down with some of my LDS friends, I'm on good footing doing this then, according to Orson Pratt. So um, take a look at page, uh, still page eight, but the top of the page here, okay? Um, this is, this is um, history of the church. This is written by Joseph Smith himself, okay, the first prophet, by, written by Joseph Smith. Um, and I think this is volume one of uh, History of the Church, and um, written in 1841. And you look at the underlying part there, he says this about the Book of Mormon. This is really important. This is Joseph Smith's view of the Book of Mormon. He says, I told the brethren that the Book of Mormon was the most correct book of any book on earth. And the keystone of our religion, and that a man would get nearer to God by by abiding uh, by its precepts than any other book. Okay, so and we'll look at a few other places where some strong claims are made about this book is the most, according to Joseph Smith, this is the most correct book on earth, and that you'll get closer to God by abiding by its precepts than any other book, anyone, anything. Okay, so let's take him at his word. Take a look, if you would, page 9. And um, if you turn it sideways, um, I'm just going to look at the left-hand column there. Um, and actually, you know what I'm going to do? For the sake of time, I'm going to skip a couple of things here because I'm looking at the clock and realizing we're kind of running out. So some of these things you can, you can read on your own and look at the parts that are underlined, and those will be the parts that are kind of important. Jump to page 10. Page 10, this comes from the Book of Alma. This is in the Book of Mormon. Um, Verse 21 of chapter 11, we see this guy named Zizram. Do you see that in verse 21? It says, now Zizram was uh, a man uh, who was an expert in the devices of evil that he might destroy that which was good. Therefore, so he's a bad guy. Zizram is an evil person, you know, the devices of evil, that sort of thing. And he he goes to uh, a man named Amulek. 
And so he says to Amulek, um, will ye answer the questions which I shall put unto you? He's trying to trick Amulek. Amulek is, a, is like a good guy, speaks the truth, sort of like a prophet. And Amulek said unto him, yea, if it be according to the spirit of the Lord which is in me, for I shall say nothing which is contrary to the spirit of the Lord. So Amulek, uh, he's a good guy. He says only truth about God. Okay, jump down to verse 26. So Zizram, the bad guy, says unto him, Thou sayest there is a true and living God. And Amulek said, Yea, there is a true and living God. Here's the big question. Zizram asks Amulek, Is there more than one God? Is there more than one true and living God? Okay. Now, there are four answers you can give to this. Is there more than one God? You could say there are no gods at all. Right? That's called atheism. You could say, uh, well, actually, everything's God. That's called pantheism. All is God. Um, you could say, yeah, there are more than one God. There are many gods. That's polytheism. Or you could say, there is one true and living God. That's monotheism. Those are the only four. I mean, if you, if you take comparative religions, that's one of the points of departure in any college classroom. Is that's sort of the basic question that you start with. So Zizram is asking this question. Are there more than one gods? Uh, are there more than one? Is there more than one God? Look at um, uh, Amulek's answer. Verse 29. He says this. And he answered him, no. Now Zizram said unto him again, how knowest thou these things? How do you know this? Is this your opinion? Is this your guess? Is this what you've deduced from your life? And he said unto him, an angel hath made it known unto me. And then I don't have this underlined, but verse 35 says, Now Zizram said unto the people, See that ye remember these things, for he said there is but one God. And then he goes on to try to trick Amulek a little bit later. So according to Zizram's big question, Is there more than one God? What is the answer of the prophet in the Book of Mormon? No. Now you might be kind of surprised, like, wait a minute, last week you just told us some things like God can become men, and, or I mean men can become gods, and God used to be a man. Like, I didn't expect this. This is an odd answer. Well, here's the thing. The Book of Mormon was written in what year? 1830. Okay. Smith, a few years later, bought some Egyptian documents by this person. He came about them and then claimed to translate them. And so we've got like the book of Abraham, which is in the Pearl of Great Price, a number of years later. Um, if you look at the, the bottom page, um, there's this creation account in the book of Abraham that Joseph Smith claims is this ancient text that Abraham himself wrote. And there's a creation account, but it's very different than the one in Genesis. And you can kind of see the big difference there. Now, remember Zizram's question, is there more than one God? Book of Mormon's answer is, no, one. Uh, Book of Abraham uh, says, and then the Lord said, let us go down. And they went down at the beginning and, and uh, they, that is the gods, organized and formed the heavens and the earth. And then verse 3, and they, the gods, said, let there be light. There was light, verse 4. And they, the gods, comprehended the light, for it was bright, verse 5. And the gods called the daylight. It, you can just peruse through the rest of this. It's very, very clear. The gods, capital G, plural gods in the book of Abraham. Um, now, what happened over time is that the book of Abraham won out over the book of Mormon. And, and, and this polytheism 
kind of became entrenched. And then LDS kind of went back and tried to reinterpret the Book of Mormon, given this new view, given this sort of evolution or, or change in it. And so what, what, if you talk to Mormons today, they will say, well, there's one God with whom we have to deal with. Does that make sense? You say, are there many, many gods? Well, yeah, but there's only one God with whom we have to deal. That's what it's only one God for this system. Well, the problem is, this is the creation of our worlds. And like these gods aren't just present. They're creating, they're organizing, not creating because they can't create. They're part of making this world. So, you know, it's, um, we're told by Mormons that the glory of God is intelligence. And so we want to be consistent so are there, is there more than one God who has to do with this world or are there many or is there only one God? And I would suggest there's only three possibilities. Either I can say the Book of Mormon, there's one God, the Book of Mormon's true and this I have to reject. Or I say there's many gods, this is true and I have to reject the Book of Mormon. Or third option, which would be my suggestion, is that both of them are false. Both of them are making false claims. But those are the only three options that we have here. Okay, so jump over to the next page. So the first question we looked at, are, is there one God or many gods? Um, and again, we want to know what the Book of Mormon says, because Joseph Smith said it was the most what? Correct book on earth. So we want to let that guide us if it's true. Um, on page 12, here's a question. One wife or many? Um, polygamy, or what, what the uh, Mormons used to call uh, spiritual wivery in, in, in their history began pretty early on. Um, Joseph Smith early on was accused of polygamy. He vehemently denied it, said I you know, vehemently denied it. Later, he received a revelation from God, not just um, allowing it, but commanding it. So he practiced it. Um, and then that those those um, revelations were canonized under Brigham Young, meaning they became scripture. And then 1890, when the state of Utah was um, facing possible receivership, basically being uh, the chance of being bankrupt by the federal government, they received a new revelation stopping it. Um, and so today, I mean, the quickest way, if you're LDS, to get, to get excommunicated is practice polygamy. If, if you live the way Joseph Smith or Brigham Young did, you will be excommunicated from the LDS church. And so many of these splinter groups... Make, I think, very strong arguments to say the LDS Church is just liberal. You know, they've, they've gone the liberal route. We are being faithful, you know, to the original document. But let's take a look at this. This is Book of Mormon. Um, and in, um, this is from the Book of Jacob, in the Book of Mormon. And uh, this is chapter 2, verse 24. And we read this. Now, this is in 1830. Behold... David and Solomon truly had many wives and concubines, which things was an abominable, what was abominable before me, saith the Lord. Okay, so it wasn't just bad. It, it, it was an abomination. Okay, and then we're, we're told specifically who David and Solomon, both of them had wives and concubines. And we're told, according to the Book of Mormon, that was it was an abomination before God. Move over to the right side of the page, D&C, the Doctrine and Covenants. This is, uh, they don't say chapters, they say sections. So section 132 records a revelation given to Joseph Smith in 1843, one year before his death. 
And this revelation says this, David, who received many wives and concubines, and also Solomon and Moses, my servants, and also many other my servants from the beginning of creation until this time. Um, and in nothing did uh, and in nothing did they sin, save meaning except there's one incidence um, in those things which they received not from me. And then verse 39 says, David's wives and concubines were given unto him of me. God saying I gave him those um, and others of the prophets who had the keys to the power, meaning the power of multi wives or multiple wives. And in none of these things did he sin against me, save the case of Uriah and his wife. That's Bathsheba. So we're told very clearly in 1843 that David, Solomon, Moses, none of these guys sinned in any way having wives and concubines. In fact, I gave them. So the question is, is it, is it one wife or many wife? Well, it depends on what year you ask the question. Right? I mean, it, it really, really does. In 1830, it was an abomination. In 18, not just then, David and Solomon, that was an abomination. In 1843, that then, David and Solomon, was actually what they were commanded to do. Now, here's the thing. Let me just say a, a, a word about our method. Last week, we talked about this, uh, this idea of uh, speaking truth and love. Remember that? When you have a conversation with a Mormon, this is not about painting someone into a corner. Okay, this is not about being right. Um, I heard someone say recently, never paint anyone to a corner because they, they only have one way out. Okay? This, this is about a gentle conversation. And here's what I would suggest as you talk to someone. Um, and, and I've blown this a lot of times where I've talked to someone and I start I start with saying something like, hey, you know, you've got a problem with your scriptures. You're wrong. How does that feel versus saying, hey, I've got a problem in understanding this. Would you help me understand it? Because I've got a problem. I, can't, I just can't wrap my mind around this. Would you help me? See, that's very, very different. I need, I need someone who I can trust to help explain these things to me. Because I've got a lot, if this is true, if it really is true, and I mean this, I want to give my life to it. You know, Orson Pratt even said that. But I don't understand it. I've, I've heard some things. Would you help me understand it? That's a very different way. So always, always please be careful about our tone, about our method. Does that make sense? Okay, um, real quickly, jump down to page 13. Uh, this is Doctrine and Covenants. Here, here's the question. This book right here, the Book of Mormon, does it contain what's called the fullness of the gospel? Because remember, Joseph Smith was told that there were many plain and precious truths lost in the Bible and that it was being restored in the Book of Mormon, and so many, many times it says the Book of Mormon contains the fullness of the gospel. So here's, here's the question we have to ask. This is um, Doctrine and Covenants, um, section 128, and I'm sorry, section 27 first, and um, verse 5. It says, uh, Behold, this is wisdom in me, therefore marvel not, for the hour cometh that I will drink of the fruit of the vine, with you on the earth and with Moroni when I have sent unto you to reveal the book of Mormon. Remember, that's that's this right here. You know, when he came, you know, Moroni came and you know, gave him the revelation of the book of Mormon um, containing the fullness of the gospel. So what contains the fullness of the gospel? The, the book of Mormon, right? We're told the book of Mormon contains the fullness of the gospel according to God. And so. Mormons believe that the Bible has been corrupted and many 
plain and precious truths have been lost. And so what's restoring it is the Book of Mormon, because the Book of Mormon contains, according to this revelation from God, the fullness of the gospel. Okay, so look at look over the right side of the page, section 128. Um, we, we read this. Look at the underlying part. In an, uh, a special manner, this most glorious of all subjects belonging to the everlasting gospel. So he's telling us what, what is one of the most, no, the most glorious aspect of the fullness of the gospel. What is it? Read the rest of the sentence. Baptism for the dead. So what is it that is like the, at the heart of the fullness of the gospel? Baptism for the dead. Remember last week we talked about that. If you took a tour of the temple, you saw this huge baptismal font and, and, and how these practices were. Uh, a Mormon will, will take on the name of a dead person, relative or otherwise, and be baptized by proxy or baptized in their name because it's an act for them because they need that in, in, in the afterlife in order to reach a higher level of exaltation. Okay? Um, so... But here's, here's the question. If baptism for the dead is the most glorious of all subjects pertaining to the everlasting, everlasting gospel, and if the Book of Mormon contains the fullness of the everlasting gospel, where do you suppose you're going to find baptism for the dead? This is not a hard question. Where's it going to be? It's going to be in the Book of Mormon. You will not find baptism for the dead even a reference anywhere in the Book of Mormon. It's not there. Not only is it not there, the Book of Mormon teaches that baptism for the dead is not needed. Turn page, if you would, um, page 14 and 15, and turn your book sideways, or, well, like this, turn it like, uh, turn it like this. Not sideways, I guess, leave it the way it is, sorry. I was looking at it sideways already. Um, I'm going to let you read the pages on the left on your own. Let me paraphrase it for you. <clears throat> Essentially, the, the author is making the argument that those who died in the past, who did not have the law, that Christ's sacrifice covers them and they don't need to be baptized. And then it goes on to say, in fact, um, think about children. Like the Mormon church, for instance, anyone under eight in the, in the LDS church they, who's died, they, they don't baptize for because that's not needed. It's the idea that they, they haven't become aware of the law and sin and all this sort of thing. And so they don't, they don't baptize for children under eight today. And this is kind of where this idea comes from, that it's not needed for those people. Go all the way over to the far right side of the page. Again, read this on your own. It'll give you great context. But basically saying you don't need to do it for people who don't have the law. Okay. Or for children. Um, so this is Moroni 8.22. Now listen to this. It says, For behold, that all little children are alive in Christ. And if you want to know what that means, read the, the context for Alive in Christ means they don't need baptism. They don't need They're alive in Christ. They're accepted. And who else, though? And also all they that are without the law. So they're alive in Christ. They don't need that as well. For the power of redemption uh, cometh on all them that have no law. Wherefore, he that is not condemned, I'm sorry, he that is not condemned or he that is under no condemnation cannot repent. 
If you don't have law, you can't even repent. And unto such baptism availeth nothing. If, if a person who has dead and had no law, baptism doesn't even mean anything for them. And then he goes on to say this. It is a mockery before God, denying the mercies of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and putting trust in dead works. Isn't that interesting? This passage tells us that baptism for the dead who never had the law is uh, making a mockery before God. And putting trust in dead works, which are works for the dead. This is according to the Book of Mormon. Um, jump over to the next page. I don't think we're going to get through all this. We'll just kind of pick up here maybe next week when we get back. But let me just let me just say, um, you know what? Let me stop there. Because it is 8.04. And I thought, I'm so stupid, I thought I'd get through a lot more. Can you put a bookmark in this? Can you come back next week? Okay. Here's here's what I want to do. Next week, we'll pick up right here. And we're going to specifically look at what we've we've looked at um, some of the claims that the Book of Mormon is making. and, And seeing that. Mormonism seems to be on shaky ground according to the Book of Mormon. Okay, that's that's all the claim that we're that we're making tonight. And then, like I said, next week I want to look at uh, a second reason why it's really not what we're called to do to pray about a new revelation. Why that's actually a foolish thing. And then even see some things in the Book of Mormon that should cause great concern for our Mormon friends and neighbors. And what my hope is that we can use this. In conversation to plant seeds of doubt, but not just leave that there. Okay, disbelief is no better than unfounded belief, right? But but for a person who has unfounded belief to experience some doubt in that unfounded belief, and then to move ultimately to belief in Christ, that that they would meet the one who is who has been eternally God, the one who knit them together in their mother's womb, the one who his grace, his finished work on the cross has completely paid for all of their sins and that they don't need to do anything in order to accomplish or to receive that gift. It is a free gift of God, not by works, Paul says, so that no one can boast and so that we can see the true gospel that it can just like glimmer because it's so beautiful and that it shatters our pride and it shatters all of our works. And we come humbly to the cross as, as we used to sing, just as I am. Right? Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do recognize the truth and the reality that we can claim nothing of our own doing, of our own good, of our own works, of our own behavior that in any way merits or put you in our debt. We have nothing, nothing do we bring simply to the cross we cling. And so, Father, may we keep our eyes fixed tightly on the person of Jesus. May we be empowered by His Spirit that He has sent to transform our lives, not in order to receive Your approval, but because we already have it. 
And may we live out of that kind of fullness. May we minister out of that kind of fullness. May we engage in activity and creativity. May we build and do great things out of that fullness of pure acceptance and love by you. Having a confidence, a strong confidence that we are accepted in Christ. And it's entirely his activity and his works by which we can say, Abba. We can say, Daddy. We can say, you are our father. And we're adopted into the family of God. We're so grateful for that. Thank you for family here. Thank you for doing great things in our community. We love you. And we look forward to all being together. Bring us back safely together next Wednesday. In Jesus' name. Amen.